If you have your Bibles, I invite you to find them and turn with me to Genesis chapter 38. This is one of those passages where you you have to believe that 2 Timothy 3.16 is true and accurate when it says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Because Genesis 38 will test and try you when you, uh, when you get to it. So we're going to read the, uh, we'll read the whole chapter together. And, um, and then we'll look at it. Let's read together. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her, made love to her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. And she gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your sister's, with your brother's wife, and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son, Shelah, grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adolamite went with him. When Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that those Shelah had not had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. And he said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. And so he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. 
he asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road Anim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result she is now pregnant. And Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns thee, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put his hand out, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. When his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zerah. Let's pray. Father, we pause as we come to your word this morning. We know that in it there are many things for us, your people, even today. And so we pray that you would um, prepare our hearts, that you would plow them to receive your word, that you would remind us of your sovereignty this day. And that, Father, our meditations and the words of my lips concerning your word would be acceptable in your sight. Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, here we are in Genesis 38. Marion thought he had it tough last week. Um, what do we do here? What do we do with this passage? We said a couple of weeks ago that we were making a transition, and we were transitioning from the life of Jacob to the life of Joseph. And that that's an oversimplification. Because really what we're doing is we're transitioning from Jacob to his sons. And what we're seeing is a continuation. Marion and I were talking this morning. We're seeing a continuation of a theme in the book of Genesis. And, and this very well could be the theme. There are no heroes in the book of Genesis. If, if you're looking for a moral representative, someone who's going to give you um, something to live by and to look like and to feel like and to grab hold of, you're not going to find that person in the book of Genesis. Dare I say, you're not going to find that person in the Bible because that's not the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is this overarching theme that the God of the universe, the God who created us in Genesis 1 and 2, is the same God who pursued us in the fall, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16, all the way down through the ages. And so 
what you're really getting in the book of Genesis is this family. Remember, God came and he called Abraham, okay, down in Ur of the Chaldeans, worshiping many gods. And God moved towards Abraham, called him out of Ur, and and gave him the most amazing promise that he would be the father of a great nation. That he would be, that he and his family and his children would be a blessing to the nations. And then you watch train wreck after train wreck after train wreck in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now Jacob's sons, as we see last week in Genesis chapter 37, how they would take their younger brother, And first they would ponder murdering him. And then they would move to a more satisfactory uh, answer to the problem of Joseph, that high-minded young brother of theirs. They would throw him in a cistern where he would starve to death. No, let's sell him into slavery and send him down to Egypt for 20 shekels of silver. That was Judah's answer to the problem of letting Joseph starve to death in the cistern. Oh, thank you, Judah, for coming to the rescue of your young brother. And so, story after story after story in the book of Genesis is not the story of here is how you live the good life, the Christian life. Here is how you live as a son of promise. Instead, it's Here is a God of grace who pursues to the very end those whom he loves, who he has called for a mighty purpose. And that is what is happening here. And so we come to Genesis 38. We've had Genesis 37. And what you need to understand about this chapter is Joseph's life is is happening. He is being carried off into captivity. And so... Parallel to that, for roughly 20 years or so, now is chapter 38 and Judah's life, okay? So these two are running parallel. This isn't, this, you know, chapter 38 doesn't happen overnight. Joseph's life is still being lived and Judah takes a turn. It, you'll notice in the first verse, it says, at that time Judah left his brothers and went down to this, to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. So, Understand, Judah's life is now going to run parallel in chapter 38 for about 20 years. All the while, everything else is happening and we'll pick Joseph's story back up. So just kind of have that in your mind as we begin to look at this. I titled this sermon, Where the Gospel Flourishes. And we're going to look at it under four points this morning. Where the gospel flourishes, self-righteousness rules. That's our first point. Where the gospel flourishes, self-righteousness rules. When chapter 38 opens, Judah is the new subject. Chapter 37, we just recounted, remember? He, he is the voice of what I call violent reason, right? His option was the best of three really bad options for disposing of Joseph. He had offered that they would sell their brother instead of leave him there in the cistern. Chapter 38 opens, Judah is leaving his brothers and his father and the land that God promised, 
and he is heading out to the land of the Canaanites. So Judah is leaving behind the promise. Judah is leaving behind his father, Jacob. He's leaving behind his brothers, which means he's leaving behind God and his promise to Judah and to the other brothers, that he would be their God, that they would be his people, and that they would flourish in the land, and they would be a blessing to the nations. Judah's saying, I don't need that. I don't want that. Now, you, you really, when you stop and you think about it, There's almost a sense in which you can't blame Judah for wanting out of that family, okay? Remember everything that has happened up to this point with respect to Judah and his father and the way he was treated and the way that Joseph was fond over and the favoritism that went on in the family and all of those issues. The, The relationship between Jacob and Esau and how Judah and the other brothers were sent out in front, right, as kind of an offering to Esau. You know, all of those things, all of that dysfunction in that family. Can you blame Judah for just saying, I'm done with this mess? And he leaves. He leaves it all behind. And he goes down. And he takes a wife, and he has a son, and he begins a life that is exactly what God would tell his people in the future. Don't do this. Don't enmesh with the Canaanites. Don't take their women as your wives. Don't don't so intertwine your life with their lives that you become unrecognizable to the world. And yet, that's exactly what Judah is doing. Jacob stays behind, mourning the loss of a son. The brothers, no doubt, there's a serious bout of infighting as they debated back and forth, killing Joseph. All of these things are happening. There's murder, there's treason, there's fighting, there's lying, there's stealing, there's dishonoring your parents, there's callous and hard-hearted living. The list goes on, and Judah's in the middle of it, and he says enough, and he gets out of it. And so he has left the family and the land. He has left the God of the covenant. He's throwing his lot in with the Canaanites. When he does that, he essentially is throwing the towel in on the covenant, on this relationship, this special relationship that Jacob, before him, Isaac, before him, Abraham, have with the Lord. When Judah leaves it all, he goes his way, it's as if he's saying, God, I don't need you, and I don't need your covenant. I can do it my way. I can do it alone. And that is the essence of self-righteousness. The self-righteous says, I don't need God. The self-righteous says, I've got this. And listen, it comes in two forms. One is a complete rejection of God. That's irreligion. 
The other is, it comes when a person presumes upon the grace of God, and they pick up the mantle and they say, hey, look at me. Look at what I've accomplished. Oh, God got me started, but I've done really well for myself. And we call that religion. Self-righteousness flourishes in both of those cases. Irreligion on the one hand, where the person abandons God, abandons everything pertaining to God, and religion in which the person forgets that salvation is by faith through what? Grace. And grace is the unmerited favor of God in your life. And so both instances, both irreligion and religion, produce in us a self-righteousness that is offensive to God. In this case, the case of Judah, he chooses the path of irreligion. He says, look God, I've had enough of you, I've had enough of this stuff, I've had enough of this family, and I am going to get out and get away. And so he leaves the covenant God who has promised that he would use him, he leaves him to go and do it his way. Where self-righteousness rules, there is always an opportunity for the gospel to flourish. Why? Right? Because don't forget, the gospel says that Jesus came down and he offered himself as a sacrifice for the one who has said, I don't need God. And so the gospel says to that individual who is living the life of irreligion, God loved you so much that he sent his son into the world to die for you. But then to the person who is religious, who forgets the grace that has bought them, who, per, who forgets the God who's pursued them, who, who hold themselves up as the one, it says, you were so desperate that I had to come down and rescue you. Don't forget. And so the gospel can flourish in both of those situations. How does it flourish in Judah's life? Well, that's that's the story, isn't it? And I want us to see it here in a couple of minutes. But don't ever forget. Right? Because often we look at often we look at religion and we go, "Ah, isn't that pretty?" And it's not. And we look at the irreligious and we go, "There's no hope for that person. There's no hope for them." When the reality is, oh yes there is. Because the gospel flourishes in both cases. So the second point that I want you to notice is that the gospel also flourishes when desperation is real. When there is no kidding, on the ground desperation, the gospel has an opportunity. And in the story, right, it's a very difficult part of the story, Tamar is in a real pickle. Judah had three sons, Ur, Onan, and, do you love this, this name? He would make a good Australian, right? Sheila. Remember Sheila? That, that's terrible. All right. Sheila. So, Ur, Onan, and Sheila. Judah secured a wife for his firstborn son, Er, 
And her name was Tamar. Okay? So we learn in the passage that Er was a wicked man. God judged him by killing him. And verse 8, Judah tells Onan that he's to take Tamar and have children with her in order that she might have offspring that would be credited to his brother Er. Okay? That was the custom of the day. That That's what you did. And so um, Onan is, he's only partly invested in the situation. Are you with me? Okay? He's only partly invested. He gained, but he made sure that Tamar would never bear any children. And so the Lord puts him to death. In verses 11 and 12, Judah is really struggling with the situation in which he's found himself. Because Tamar should have gone now to Shelah. So Shelah should have been the brother who now marries Tamar. But Judah's thinking to himself, hmm, maybe it's Tamar who's bad luck. Maybe she's the reason my other two sons have died. I don't really want to give my third son to her, only to have him fall to the same fate. And so Judah tells Tamar, go back to, go back to your father's house and live there until my third son is old enough to get married. And so that's what's taken place. All the while, Judah is shirking his responsibility to Tamar. He is the responsible party in the situation. He knew it. Tamar knew it. And no doubt, Shelah knew it as well. Enough time has passed that Judah was stuck. Tamar was to become Shelah's wife and bear children. But she's damaged goods. She's 0 for 2 in the husband department, both of them having died. And so the circumstances are closing in. However, here's the sticking point for Judah. In order for his line to continue, right? In order for his name to continue, he, his son, Shayla, has to get married. Enough time goes by. His wife passes away. We're talking years and years and years and years. Shayla's clearly old enough to be married, and it hasn't happened yet. And that's where the story picks up. Because all the while, Judah's worried about himself and Shayla. There's Tamar. Living in her father's house. Now listen, again, it's customs of the day. She is, da- she really is damaged goods in that society. She will amount to nothing as a, as a person in the situation she's in. She's in her father's house. No one is going to marry her. No one is going to take a chance on her. That's the situation for Tamar. A widow with no future. None, unless Shelah and Judah step up and do the right thing. So in verse 12, so here's Tamar. She's down and out. She's thinking to herself, what is my only hope? How can I get this man to move? How, 
How can I make Judah invest in me again? So in verse 12, Judah is heading off for the annual shearing of the sheep party, gathering. Um, the boys will be boys, get together, is really what it amounts to. Now, Judah must have had quite the reputation, right? Because as soon as Tamar hears that Judah is leaving for this get-together, what does she do? She takes off her widow's clothes. She puts on her, um, yeah, those clothes. She goes down. She sits at the gate and she waits for Judah to come by. And he does. He comes by, he notices her, he makes a proposal, and the stage is set for a very dramatic showdown. The gospel flourishes when desperation is real. Tamar had no one to look after her. She's seen now in a very bad light in town. She shows up three months pregnant. Not a pleasant situation. And all because Judah had failed to do what he was supposed to do in her life. Be her protector. But God. Does it surprise you that he is involved in this? God? In this mess? We know that he is. Because if you fast forward in your Bibles to Genesis I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. Guess what? Judah, Tamar, and Perez show up again. Because they, as it turns out, are the ancestors of the Savior of the world. Wow. We find out that the episode between Judah and Tamar actually becomes something beautiful in Perez. Who stands in the line of the Savior. Why is this tragic story in the Bible? If you want to know why the story is in the Bible, it's because God uses it to bring about the Savior. It's in an odd place. It shows up at an odd time. It's an odd story. It's a story that makes us, frankly, a little embarrassed. It's a difficult story. I had a friend in the Air Force, Gunnar Conroe. I hope he'll probably listen to the sermon because he's asked me for years. Why is the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis? I don't understand. The reason is because it is a shining picture. Of the grace of God. It is a shining picture. That the gospel flourishes when there's real hopelessness and desperation. Not only that. But Tamar meets grace and mercy in the person of Judah. Who is altered radically so in this story. Because there he is breathing out murderous pronouncements against Tamar for her acts. And yet he was the real perpetrator in the story at all levels. And yet it was her actions that brought 
all of this out. And so he relents immediately. He sees, he knows, he gets it, and he confesses. Tamar, in the act of prostitution and incest, is more righteous than I am. More righteous than I am is Judah's pronouncement. Don't overlook the opportunity for reconciliation. When things look bleak, when things look dire, when things look desperate. Because it is often the fertile fertile soil of gospel transformation. Here's the third point. Where the gospel flourishes, lives are forever changed. Obviously, these things don't happen overnight. Genesis 38 is about a 20-year span. But not only does Judah own this situation, but what do we learn? We learn that Judah goes back to his family. He goes back to his land. He goes back to his brothers. It is actually Judah in the end that provides some sane leadership in that family. And so through all of this, he is redirected back to the land, back to the promise, and back to the God who initiated with his father and his father's father and his father's father, father. Way back there. If you fast forward to Genesis 49, you read this in verses 8 and 9. As Jacob is about to die, he announces, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah. And so from his father's mouth, he looks and he announces this amazing blessing on Judah that from you, Judah, will come the scepter, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he will reign forever. From you, Judah. What a powerful reminder. That our salvation, just like Judah's salvation, is all of God's grace. By God's grace, for God's glory. Listen, God's grace is the undeserved merit of God to us. Let me ask you, in this story, to this point, has Judah done anything deserving of God's favor? You can't name one thing except at the very end of the story, he announces that he indeed is that bad. That's all he brings to the table. All he brings to the table is, Tamar, you are more righteous than I am. That's all that Judah brings to the table. What is that? I'm a really lousy dude. That's the translation. I'm a sorry individual. That's all that Judah can bring to the table. And yet, God loves him, blesses him, 
uses him, graces him, and shows mercy to him. Anything that happens in our lives, any part of our salvation, anything good that is going on in us spiritually is all of God's grace. Period. Listen, if you had anything to do with your salvation, you would mess it up. If Judah had anything to do, if if Judah was responsible early on, let's say, he gave it all up when he threw it all away and he went down to throw in his lot with the Canaanites. But what happened? God chased him all the way down to the land of the Canaanites and he brought him all the way back. Because when God sets his love on an individual, he is going to have him. God pursued him. God won him. Judah is a trophy of God's grace, not of anything that he's done. And why is that? Because when the gospel flourishes and where the gospel flourishes, God gets all the glory. Every part of the story reminds us that it's for God's glory. Because God is the one that is doing the saving. God is the one doing the pursuing. God is the one doing the loving. I want to take you to a passage, Luke chapter 18, and we're going to end here. Luke chapter 18. This highlights the idea of God being sovereign over our lives. God being the one who is the impetus for our salvation. The one that carries it on to completion. The one that doesn't stop. The one that makes miraculous things happen in our lives. Luke takes two stories in Luke 18 and Luke 19. He takes two stories. The first one is the story of the rich young ruler. And and that story, this teacher comes And asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus goes through a number of things, basically trying to get at the heart of the issue, which was his wealth. He wasn't willing to divest himself of all of his wealth. And then there's this interaction. This interaction between Jesus and the disciples. Because Jesus, in verse 24 of Luke 18, says, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples hear this and they say, well, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Because they understood they were all wealthy beyond their wildest dreams, no matter what it was they had. Then who can be saved? And what does Jesus say? Verse 27, what is impossible with men is possible with God. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Now, the rich young ruler left. He went away sad because he had much wealth. That's what we learn. Enter Luke 19. And a wee little man named Zacchaeus, who was what? A rich man. He was a tax collector. He was very, very wealthy. And what does the story of Zacchaeus tell us? What does it teach us? It teaches us that what is impossible with man, i.e., someone who cannot get it, who's irreligious or very religious, someone who cannot affect their own destiny, 
and their relationship with God can have their destiny affected when God moves in them. And so the story of Zacchaeus pops up. And the story of Zacchaeus is a story of a wee little man who had his heart completely transformed as he sat down to dinner with Jesus. And he said, I am going to give back more than restitution to anybody I've ever swindled from. In one foul swoop, because everything that Zacchaeus had, he had stolen. And in one foul swoop, Zacchaeus said, for you, Jesus, I'll give it all up. And he did. And what does Jesus end with? Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this home. You see, it's all of God. All the way through the Bible. Judah, Zacchaeus, the Apostle Paul, you, me, there are no heroes. There's only a gracious and merciful God who pursues us to the end and then tells us nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for your word and for its impact upon us, a reminder to us that even Judah, even Tamar, even the product of their sin is for your glory. Father, we don't relish where we've been, where we will go. We don't relish how far we've fallen, how much we've struggled. It's hard for us. It's hard for us to comprehend that even in all of our struggles and all of our sin and all of our desperation, you can love us. But the Word tells us that you do. And if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. You will use us mightily in your kingdom. The Apostle Paul reminds us over and over that even though we are clay pots, vessels of dishonor, you will use us for the honorable task of bringing glory to your name. And so we earnestly pray, Lord. Show us your grace and mercy. Let us revel in that and that alone. For there you get glory. In Christ's name, amen. I invite you to take your hymnals. Let's stand as we sing together. Hymn 526, The Solid Rock. Let's sing the first and the last stanza.
Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. For those of you who are standing on Christ the solid rock, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.